Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Future Projection Podcast. This is episode seven. I am Carlos Colazzo, as always, and joined by Ben Badler. What's going on, Ben? Doing well, Carlos. Getting inching closer toward the minor league season getting here. Going to go see some BC and NC State. Your, your guy, Luca Tresh, going to get some looks at him this weekend. So things are, things are looking good. Yeah, Ben's out running around in the Northeast, seeing some draft prospects. I know you've seen Joshua Baez a few times, getting some more of those college guys. And uh, I guess the biggest thing since we last talked is the Major League season is underway. I, I think our last podcast was just before opening day. We hadn't seen any big league baseball, but big league baseball is back. We got to see Miguel Cabrera homer in a, the middle of a blizzard. We got to see Shohei Otani hit an absolute monster home run. Akil Badu is looking fantastic as it's one of the more exciting rule five picks in recent years. Um, but there's a lot of news that we want to touch on today. I think one of the bigger stories in baseball, at least since we've been on the podcast was the Francisco Lindor contract agreed to an extension with the mess, probably a few hours after we released our last podcast, actually it's, it's fairly old at this point, so we don't have to go super in depth on it. I'm sure you guys have read up on the deal. If you're interested about it, I'm sure Mets fans have thrown, uh, a few celebrations for locking a talent like that up with, with their team for the next decade, but it is $341 million, notably $1 million more than uh, the Fernando Tatis contract. Um, do you have any thoughts on that, Ben? It almost to me, is kind of sad for Indians fans that their guy who has been the face of their franchise and is probably still the most, although maybe Shane Bieber has an argument for that now, but, just when you think of Francisco Lindor, you, at least I still think of the Indians because of what he did with that franchise and how good he was. Uh, and, and the fact that he goes to a massive market and immediately signs an extension has to sting a little bit if you're a Cleveland fan. But any Are thoughts you saying on Andres, You're saying Andres Jimenez is, is not going to step in and, and, and replace that production? Yeah. Man, that's, that's tough. Their, their lineup – their lineup this year is going to be really interesting. And I think as we, as we talk right now, the Indians are at the bottom of the division. You see how many runs they've scored so far this year. But, yeah, I mean, just like Jose Ramirez and then – and even Tyler Naquin is now mashing through the first week with the Reds after the Indians have been trying to get an outfielder for the last three years, it seems like. But yeah, let's see. The Indians are 2-3 and three at the bottom of their division right now, have scored 17 runs – which as I scroll through, I believe is tied for worst in baseball along with the Pirates and the A's at this point. And we're still very early into the season, so you can't really overreact to too much. But, man, it's going to be tough. It's pretty awesome for Mets fans, though, who I feel like need some good news. Absolutely. (laughs) Jacob deGrom has not been good enough for them, apparently. After everything from the previous ownership group, it's Mm going to feel – Got to feel nice to actually be have an owner who's willing to to spend on a on a superstar player for for this caliber. 
Yeah, it only makes sense that the teams in New York are big spenders, right? It's weird for them not to have been in recent years, but yeah, I think it fits. It is good for those fans. I know Matt Eddy is probably excited as a the resident Mets guy here um, to watch him with that team. But uh, yeah, no, it's been it's been fun to to watch the games. Has has there been anything that you've been paying attention to at the big league level? Have you taken the time to watch any games? Are you too deep into our international reviews that are I think we're two or three divisions up on the site now, depending on when you're listening to this podcast. Um, it's been really cool to see you pumping out that content. So if you want more information on the international classes, definitely check out the site and, and Ben still has more on the way in the near future as well. Yeah. This is a time of year where I just gorge on baseball. <laughs> now, I mean, we don't have the minor league season started yet, so that's taking it out a little bit for me, but yeah, whether it's just, writing about these writing writing up all these international players who just signed on January 15th going out to games here to see high school players uh college players in the area and then coming home to turn on a major league game or or hopefully two major league games get the west coast games too it's it just feels so good to have this much baseball bag i, I mean the biggest thing that stands out for me is just how how ridiculously talented Shohei Otani is. I mean, w- watching him in in Japan, I don't think there was much of any doubt about his ability on the mounds. Mm-hmm. This guy was throwing triple digits with some wipeout secondary stuff. Big, outstanding athlete, throw strikes, had a lot of success. At a very young age, too, mm-hmm. in Japan, I thought he would come over, be a front of the rotation type starter pretty much right away. And then offensively, a ton of raw power. I, I thought he could pitch and hit. I didn't think I, – I still underestimated his bat. I didn't think he was going to be this good of a hitter. I mean, when he's healthy – He's, I mean, he's legitimately one of the best hitters in baseball, which is crazy to say for a guy who is as talented on the mound as he is. Obviously, some significant caveats as far as his durability. Uh, You know, we haven't really seen him do it over an extended period of of time on, Mm. on the mound, but when he's been healthy I mean and he's had some you know healthy full full seasons as a hitter I mean his what looking at his OPS plus 124 for for his career Mm -hmm. coming up on a thousand plate appearances already for a guy who's still just kind of entering his prime years Mm -hmm. as a hitter (laughs) I mean it's 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 ridiculous how how much of a absolute mutant this guy is no, he's a freak, and, and I think it was his first home run of the season. He has two so far, but I'm pretty sure it was his first one. was just a joy to watch. I was watching it live, and the crack of the bat, the sound that the ball made on his bat was just explosive. And, and just – I almost wish – I don't actually wish this, but if he was going to choose one, I would definitely prefer to see him as a hitter just because of how explosive he is there and because – some of the injuries he's dealt with on the mound, but he is just, it's incredible to watch him hit. And it's also incredible 
because right behind him, you have Mike Trout and then Anthony Rendon. That, that two, three, four in that lineup is pretty spectacular. But as we sit here, he's hitting 300, 333, 700 um, through six games. Again, very small sample sizes. And he's pitched once uh, through 4.2 innings, struck out seven and walked five. I think I'm probably still a little, a little bit skeptical about him on the mound. Am I being too negative, or do you think? As far as his durability or as far as his ability when, when he is on the mound? Well, I don't question the stuff, obviously, but I don't know. There's just something about maybe, – maybe I'm just scared that he is going to get hurt again and we're not going to be able to see him hit because I'm so in on him as a hitter and a position player. Yeah, I mean, it's tough because, right, because he, he was a rookie of the year in 2018, mm-hmm. and that's really the last time we saw him on the mound, right? Like, he, yeah. he missed 2019, 2020, also pretty much a, a wash. So we're, we're just kind of seeing him get mm-hmm. back on the mound now. I, I think, I mean, it's tough, right, because 2018, geez, that was, what, three years ago now, right? <laughs> but I, I think his stuff is still – it's still there. You, you see it in early in spring training. It, it looked really nasty. I, I don't, I don't have too many doubts about him on the mound. I, I, I hope he continues to do both. And I love that the angels are, are letting him still do both. I, I think he still has the stuff to be a, a frontline starter. I, I don't know about obviously durability. That's, that's a pretty big part too of being that frontline starter, but if he if he can hold up over, you know maybe and maybe you manage his innings too. Maybe he's not going to be somebody's going to throw two hundred or even one hundred eighty innings a year. Maybe you're you know getting one hundred forty, one hundred fifty innings out of a, a year out of him if if you want to manage it a little bit more, just because he is that two way guy. But I I think he can you know if, if he can hold up for that. I think he has just the at least on a on a rate basis, if he is a starter, to be a, a frontline type guy. Yeah, and to to his credit, I'm, I might be being a little bit cynical here. In, in 2018, when he got the the biggest bulk of his innings on the mound to this point in his career, it was 51 innings over 10 starts, 3.31 ERA with a 127 ERA plus. So very impressive. I'm actually trying to pull up right now to see kind of where that where he stacked up with like 23 maybe pitchers under 25. But his talent, I mean, I don't know if we've talked about this before on this podcast. We've definitely talked about it in the BA office. But in terms of talent in one player, is there anyone who compares? I know it's, it maybe is tough to compare him to any player because he's just so unique. But would you say he's the most talented overall player in baseball? I mean, he, he has to have the most tools in, in some respect, right? Just by mm-hmm. virtue of him being able to be a two-way player it's I mean obviously he's not as valuable as as Mike Trout or Mookie Betts or or some of the other you know stars of the game just as far as the value they contribute but there's yeah there's nobody in the game who can do what he's capable of doing as far as far as being a, a a really dominant start when he's been healthy a dominant starting pitcher and a, a really good hitter too I mean geez just the even just as a position player not just the production but just the the raw tools are like pretty close to the top of the scale for for 
both for power and speed. I, I think that's like the speed element of his game gets underrated just because there's so much else with him to talk about, right? Like even just in our own conversation right now, I haven't even brought up his, his, his speed because he's hitting balls out. He's hitting balls over the, over the batter's eye in spring training. I mean, he has ridiculous power. He translates that power into games and he's also, I mean, at least a, a 70 runner. I mean, it's, it's not surprising that he's such a, a good athlete, I, I guess, but yeah, uh, I mean, if, it, if, if he wasn't a pitcher, I would have him, you know, he'd probably be stealing more bases too. Right. I mean, he, yeah, with how big he is, it's so much shocking that he's that fast. He's six four two ten, at least listed at that. And then in 2018, he was 82nd percentile in all of baseball and sprint speed. And in 2020, he was 93rd percentile. So yeah, it's like, I mean, video game, it's kind of like a cliche to say he's like a video game create a player mm-hmm. type guy, but I, I've never, I've never seen anybody <laughs> who, who does this. And now all these other, you know, two way kind of, kind of two way guys at the, you know, high school level or uh, college level, people want to say, Oh, this guy's like the, uh, this version, this Otani. Ver- no, no, no. Like there's nobody. Yeah. who's. Thank- thankfully I have not seen any of those like Shohei Otani comparisons in person or, or yeah directly. there's a, there's, a there's a cuban outfielder who's mm-hmm. you know gonna sign uh, you know i presume they're gonna move the next international signing period back to january 15th next year that's basically what mlb has told teams to to expect at this point oscar colas who has has big power uh, and has some experience pitching but like is just really more of a a power hitter. I mean, look, like Brendan McKay has kind of done the the two way thing too. There, there are some guys who can do it, but just Otani is just such a different animal from 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 anybody. It's just you can't you can't call anybody the the ex Otani the this. It's just it's just totally not even in the in the same arena as far as, as talent. Who are the other notable two-way players as prospects that come to mind for you? Because the last few draft seasons, at least, I feel like we haven't had a ton of very notable two-way guys. The Hunter Green draft year, there were more of those types. Uh, there are a few in this year's class that we can talk about, but are there any that, that come to mind for, for you that are at least um, – exciting and maybe you can see them doing it at the pro level i guess mason win right now is probably the most prominent minor league prospect who in some capacity is doing the two-way experiment i'm I'm still really curious to see what kind of usage he gets because two-way is hard in general but shortstop and right-handed pitcher seems ex- exceptionally hard i don't know how that would work if you were doing two-way on a regular basis while being a shortstop. I mean, we see kids do this all the time in high school, like Jackson Job, Bubba Chandler, our two first-round uh, talents in this year's draft class, predominantly for their pitching. I think Chandler's offensive upside might be a little bit louder than Job's at this point. Um, but, but that just seems so tough to do at a pro level. Yeah, Casey Kelly, the Red Sox drafted him a while back. They tried to do it with him. Uh, like we said, Brendan McKay came out as, you know, with, with two-way skill. 
Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's guys who can do it at the college level. Like AJ Reed was a, you know, a two-way guy when he was our mm-hmm. college player of the year uh, a while back, but really more of a, a prospect as a hitter, obviously mm-hmm. never really broke through for him at the major league level. But uh, I mean, you got Caden Grace that you saw recently. He's been on the mound a few times. I don't know if yeah. he'll pitch more in the future, but he looks pretty good as a hitter. <laughs> I might just exactly. let him. I mean, I'm sure Clemson will. You know, well, I'm not sure, but uh, I imagine Clemson will let him keep pitching. I mean, that's you know, look, there, there are guys who can do that at the collegiate level, and then really as a professional, it's it's just you kind of get there. There's one thing that they really excel at, and you know, maybe like pitching can be a fallback option for them if it if it doesn't work out. Uh, it's 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 a lot harder to do that, I think, at the professional level. But I mean, you mentioned Mason Wynn. I'm I'm psyched that the Cardinals are. It seems like going to let him try his hand at at shortstop and pitching. I I really like him in 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 both sides. I mean, on on the mound, he's he's got huge velocity he's, he's a really good athlete i think he has the secondary stuff to miss bats and and in games obviously you know we don't have any professional games with him yet but as as an amateur including at the the world with bat he put on a huge show there so he's he's performed well in games he's, he's not that big of a guy but I, I think he has really good hand-eye coordination puts a pretty good charge in the ball for his size but yeah like you said i mean otani is doing the two-way thing but he's he's not really playing a a position it's just that his his bat is so good that he can be he can be a dh and it can carry him as a dh which is ridiculous (laughs) he's able to to pitch and hit to that level but i i I think yeah i mean let i mean look mason win is still a, a teenager right let him go out and try to do both things and if look if he if it turns out he's getting lit up on the mounds then and and it's not going to work out from there Hmm. uh, okay then then just all right continue having him develop as a shortstop with him already getting reps there or, or or if it's the other way around and he he just is hitting you know buck 80 with a 30 percent k rate in in low a this year then okay all right maybe we think about just having him focus on on pitching at that point but i i'd like to see him continue to try to do both yeah it was very difficult for me to to kind of see where he had more upside out of out of the draft and i think teams were really split on what side of the ball they preferred him on as well. And maybe that's part of the rationale for the Cardinals uh, letting him do both. Kind of like you were saying, he'll, he'll kind of figure out what role he's better in or, or more equipped to handle in pro ball. But you mentioned his performance at the world with bat and Jupiter. And, and I just kind of want to emphasize how dominant he was. I talked to some scouts that said that was one of the, one of the best performances they've ever seen at that event, which is extraordinary praise with the sort of talent and the number of players that come through that tournament every year. I mean, he was up to 98 on the mound, showing two plus secondaries. And then he went out and played shortstop, played a good defensive shortstop. And I think he had three balls that he hit um, 95 plus with a home run, a double and a triple, something like that. It was insane. So yeah, he, he, 
I think I wrote in his draft report that pound for pound, he was maybe the most talented player in the 2020 draft class. He's a bit of an undersized guy, but man, there's really not a lot on the baseball field that he can't do. And I cannot wait to see like his upside as a hitter to me is just tremendous. So I'm really excited to see what he's able to do, how often he pitches, how he acclimates to pro pitching. He's going to be really fun. I also didn't know until just now that his middle name is Blaze, which just seems appropriate for him, given how <laughs> hard he throws, really? how fast he runs. On our site right now, it says Mason Blaze win, which is pretty great. So, you know, the, the Blazes of the world have really been taking over the draft prospects in recent years between Blaze Alexander, who can throw 98 across the diamond, Blaze Jordan, of course, who's maybe the, one of the more famous draft prospects in recent years. So it's all about the Blazes. So you're saying if, if Blaze Badler comes in the world, he's going to be able to throw 97 <laughs> yeah. or, or hit. Yeah, he'll definitely be, either be able to, to throw very hard or have just really impressive juice. So I think that's what you got to go for, Ben. I could see that. Yeah, I mean, it's, and, 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 but with, and with Wynn, too, it's going to be tough, like you said, because, I mean, if, if he is starting to then go out at shortstop and have to make every throw <laughs> at a shortstop has to make. That's and, why I brought up the shortstop specific comment. Cause I feel like most of the two way players have either been first baseman or corner outfield types where you'll have to make some throws, but it's not, it's not like the reps you get at shortstop where you're throwing the ball more than anyone on the diamond outside of the battery. So that's just a lot of, a lot of taxing, it's just – it's very taxing on your arm, I feel like it would be. I don't know. Yeah, and he's going to throw presu- – I presume he's going to throw regular bullpens, too, in between. So it's – yeah, the, the Cardinals are going to have to figure out a way, obviously, to just to manage his his workload, not just as a pitcher, but just the throws he's going to make as a shortstop. I don't know, maybe you put him at at second base to some days. I mean, obviously you still have to throw the ball there. It's, it's not as deep, but mm. maybe have them in the lineup as a, as a DH and, and emphasize just the, the hitting a little bit more than the fielding at first. I, I, I don't know what the best strategy is to, to do that. Obviously it's something they have to think about, but, but I am glad he's getting the opportunity to, to at least do it. Cause I, like you said, I, I think he has, big upside on on both sides and i'm just not sure which one is is better so let's let him try to do both of them i mean like clayton andrews is a prospect in the brewer system who's you know talk about undersized too he's five foot six maybe i think he's even listed at five foot six wow that's smaller than mason (laughs) yeah so yeah left-handed pitcher who's you know a, a relief prospect he was a real late round uh seven, yeah what 17th round pick of the brewers a, f- a few years ago primarily hey, that, that uh, draft selection will still exist this year yeah yeah so he'll be yeah <laughs> his, his draft <laughs> round still exists yeah that's good so yeah i mean he's kind of a two-way guy he's he's not a super hard thrower but um does have i mean he's a reliever he, he does have four pitches out of the bull uh out of the bullpen it's it's kind of a crossbody type delivery there's some deception he's 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 a two-way guy more in the sense of like 
he's a reliever, but also a like a, a defensive replacement outfielder. Like he is a pretty good defensive outfielder. I don't know that he's gonna ever get many at bats as a as a big leaguer, but I he's kind of an interesting guy as far as all right, you can have a have have a left handed reliever and a defensive replacement outfielder in in one roster spot is kind of a, a unique mm-hmm. flexibility option to to have but yeah i mean otherwise there's there's not a ton of guys who have the ability to 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 do it both right now in, in pro ball obviously there's some guys i think in in the draft certainly more at the, the high school level mm-hmm. who who it's it's either could do both in pro ball or it's it's something where you know some scouts like a guy more as a hitter versus mm-hmm. some guys like him more as a, a pitcher yeah, it seems like every prominent shortstop prospect in high school is also like a reliever on their high school team. I know Brady House has gotten on the mound and, and th- throws like 97 right. um, at peak, but I don't, I don't think most people view him as a, a pitching prospect per se. But th- the one guy that we mentioned earlier that I kind of want to go into a little bit more detail on is Boba Chandler. Um, he's a right-handed pitcher and shortstop out of Georgia, a Clemson commit as a, a quarterback and a baseball commit to the program. So are they good at football? I don't really, they're okay. I think (laughs) Um, as a UNC alum, I think they're probably a little overrated, but uh, no, obviously that that's pretty impressive. Um, And and I think it's honestly interesting to talk about Chandler after talking about Wynn, because I have talked about a few scouts who've made the comparison to the two in the sense that Bubba Chandler is like Mason Wynn. If he was six two, 200 pounds uh, or somewhere in that range, because I think last year it seemed like teams were pretty solidly on him as a pitcher because of the upside that he showed in the natural athleticism, his field of spinner breaking ball this year, there's been a lot of chatter about him as a, a hitter as well, because he's come out and played shortstop at a pretty high level. I think he's fairly raw and a lot of the nuances of the position, but he's such a good athlete that when he gets moving uh, and just kind of lets his body take over, he plays the position really well. He's a good runner. Uh, he has great arm strength. He's been up to 97, 98 on the mound, sitting more in the 92, 94 mile per hour range. Last summer, we had scouts saying that his curveball might be a 70 in the future. This spring, we've gotten a lot of plus grades thrown on it. Um, and on top of his his baseball skills, uh, he's also a switch hitter at the plate. And apparently, he has above average or plus raw power from both sides. I don't know how convicted teams are on like the pure hitting ability at this point. Um, but he's super tooled up. He's a three or four star uh, quarterback prospect, according to 24-7 sports, um, committed to Clemson. He can throw 40 yards downfield with his left hand with the football, which just seems insane to me. And he, I, I saw the video of it. He does it with ease. And then I've also seen a video of him windmill dunking on the basketball court. So this class is chock full of athletes, and Bubba Chandler might be one of the more impressive pure athletes in the class. And in March, he was one of the bigger helium prospects in the entire class. So I'm really hoping that baseball is able to get a guy like this into baseball and football doesn't steer him away. Obviously, he has um, future potential in both sports and, and maybe football is kind of maybe he's into football more than more than baseball or at a similar level where he wants to try both in college. But the feel I've gotten from talking to scouts is that they think he's they think that he'll give up Clemson to play baseball if he's going in the first round. And it seems like that's the spot where most teams are putting him in at this point. So he's extremely exciting. Um, and kind of ties into this two way conversation. 
Yeah. It, 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 is there some, is it just more the raw stuff and athleticism on the mound or, or is there some actual like pitchability? No, and... I think, yeah, I, I think there, there probably needs to be some refinement in his command and his delivery is pretty raw. It's more like an athlete based, he's just a functional mover on the mound. Uh, hasn't had a ton of high level pitching instruction as far as I know. So I think teams are just really thrilled with how far he is right now while also playing multiple sports, um, playing multiple positions and not really focused on pitching only and specifically. So I think teams uh, who are really excited about his upside, and I think most teams are excited about it, just are almost salivating at the thought of getting him into a program where he's working with pitching coaches who really know what they're doing and can get the most out of that athleticism, that feel for spin, that that's pretty innate. You're not going to teach those things. So I wouldn't say he's as raw as like Justin Lang from last year that the Padres took in the second round. He seems like he's uh, much more put together than that. So not a complete project on the mound with just crazy arm talent, but just very gifted athletically um, has great body control. And, and the, the questions that scouts have about the quality of his command and his strikes now, I think are, are normal questions that you would have for a pitcher who hasn't spent a lot of time on the mound rather than anything glaring or a red flag. That, that's kind of my sense of it at this point. Yeah. I, I think sometimes in, in, as an industry and as a whole, there's a bit of a, of a love affair with, <laughs> with, with players who can play college football. <laughs> um, I, I think it gets overrated to to an extent it's not anything specific to to Bubba Chandler I think sometimes there's just a a fascination with college college football or or even sometimes college basketball players at at the expense of players who who are just more skillful baseball players but obviously like you said it, it sounds like one obviously he's he's an outstanding athlete and and there's you know it sounds like certainly at least on the mound there's there's some pretty good stuff there it's it's not Mm -hmm. like you're just taking a a total raw athlete and and hoping to to mold him it sounds like there's actually pretty yeah pretty big velocity and and good feel to to spin a breaking ball it sounds like for sure yeah definitely I, i don't think he's like some sort of crazy project by any means i think it's more more just that he isn't one of these players who has played baseball year round and had a bunch of um, really specific instruction uh, from a pitching coach or from a hitting coach. Uh, And I think, I don't know if I disagree with your comment about the, the the football players and the basketball players at the college level, but I just feel like as a baseball fan, I want all these these athletes who have multiple routes in front of them. I want them to choose baseball. I want to see more athletes in baseball. And and while I do see your point that there are probably more players who are more skilled or more advanced at the same level, I don't know that that's necessarily a knock against Bubba because if he if he was a player who had given up football or basketball four years ago and just focused on baseball, who's to say how how skilled uh, he would be? with those specific baseball skills that take a little bit more time. I just really think it's fun and exciting when we can get those sorts of players, when you can get players like Jordan Adams in, in, in the game, players like Joe Adele in the game. Um, it, I, I love the upside and, and I love having as many athletes as possible. Now, 
most of the pro players are probably pretty great athletes, but I'm not going to say no to a guy who has an opportunity to play football or basketball at the collegiate level coming to play baseball instead. I'll take that. Oh yeah. No, absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, would, would Braden Montgomery be a guy? I mean, I, I just, I remember seeing him pitching in the fall last year or, or seeing him hit and pitch in the fall. And he was a guy I remember he, he I mean, he, he seems like he had really good feel for, for hitting. Uh, he's a high school player out of, uh, out of Mississippi, if I remember correctly. Right. Yes, I believe yeah. that is correct. Yeah, he's he, out of Madison Central uh, High so, School, Mississippi. Yeah, he, he seemed like he had real good feel for for hitting. Mm-hmm. Wasn't totally sure about the power with him, but he seemed like he had pretty good plan at, at the plate. And then from the outfield, he had – I mean, if, if you want to be conservative, it was a plus arm. It would probably go to a 70 arm on him. It was it was an absolute hose from, from center field. And then he got on the mound – and he had a he did have a really good breaking ball. I think the fastball was up to the up to the low nineties, like upper eighties, low nineties. Just based on how he threw from the outfield, I thought thought he'd come in throwing uh, a little bit more heat than that. But it it seemed like he had potential on on both sides at least. Yeah, definitely. And I think in a lot of ways, Montgomery is kind of that really advanced baseball player who isn't the toolsiest. I think the arm is probably his best tool or at least the loudest tool that you would put on the card. I remember last summer, uh, and I'm actually checking to see where he graded out on our preseason best tools list. Cause I think he did. Yeah. He was tied for third with Braylon Bishop for best outfield arm in the class. And the two guys in front of him were Joshua Baez and Benny Montgomery, who are just exceptionally toolsy. Um, but no, I think Braden is a, a really advanced two-way prospect. He's a guy who, if he does make it to Stanford and he doesn't go into pro ball this year, I could see him having a, a two-way impact for them. There have been a couple of players in Stanford in recent years who have done the two-way experiment and been pretty solid. Um, but yeah, he, he just has a very sound approach to the game um, on both sides. He's got a really good feel for the barrel as a switch hitter, gap to gap approach. Doesn't have a ton of power, um, but he has solid power with a projectable body who could grow into some in the future. Um, and then on the mound, I think you are right. The, the arm seems to play better from the outfield than on the mound. We've gotten scouts who put 65 grades on the arm from the outfield. And like you said, probably go 70 if you wanted to be a little bit more aggressive with it or, or if you don't do half grades or don't like half grades. Um, but it's more 90, 93 on the mound. Has good feel to land his curveball. I don't think it is a super loud kind of hammer type breaking pitch. Uh, but good feel for a curveball, good feel for a changeup, really smooth, free and easy arm action on the mound. So I just think he does a lot of things well on the field. Um, and we have him right now as uh, like the number 40 prospect in the class. So he is not a low-level prospect by any means, but I don't think he's got that explosive tool set and upside that a guy like Bubba Chandler does. But Stanford has done a good job getting their their top commits to campus, and he would seem to be a, a good shot to do both uh, in college. Yeah, you mentioned Joshua Baez too, high school outfielder from Boston, who also is a <laughs> a seventy arm, like you mentioned, crazy arm strength. I saw him play yesterday, so he's playing center field, <laughs> and the, the the 
hitter hits a ball into like the the right center field gap, oh more toward right field, so the the, the right fielder gets there before Baez by by like a handful of steps, but then the right fielder just sort of like he just sort of pulls up <laughs> and doesn't he doesn't pick up the ball, he just lets Baez go over and and pick it up. Baez picks it up and just guns down the batter trying to stretch it into a double at second base. It was pretty uh, you, you you would never see a, that play happen in pro ball <laughs> or probably even at the college level. Honestly, right. really great feel from the right fielder there. Good baseball yeah, IQ. No, he was right. <laughs> it was a smart play by by him. Yeah, give the ball to the or, or let the guy who can throw I think 97 from from the outfield <laughs> come in and and make that yeah we haven't looked to 97 on the mound or oh wait your time i've seen him up to 97 on the mound too yeah yeah Yeah, he's he's coming i've seen him pitch he's another guy like i i I wouldn't call him a a two-way prospect because i think he he, he's ranked where he's ranked where we have him right now as a, a first round talent because of his ability as an outfielder but he does oh by the way like you said with brady house can come in and throw 96 he's I've, I've seen him pitch a couple times this year they just bring him in out of a out of the bullpen he, he throws a couple innings or he throws an inning at a time he's you know in, in a one inning stint he's he's 93 96 with with actually pretty good feel to spin a breaking ball mm-hmm. but otherwise it's just more of a like he, he doesn't really focus on pitching. So yeah. I was talking kind of with Thatcher Hurd recently and he was a catcher convert conversion. And he said when he was catching, he would relieve games. And basically when he would get on the mound, he would just come in and try and throw as hard as he could. So he wasn't trying to be like efficient as a pitcher or like really hone in his craft. He just had a massive arm and then got on the mound and threw hard. That's changed now. But I imagine a lot of guys like Baez or house who aren't really pitching prospects like get on the mound and just throw it by people in high school because they can. Yeah, that's that's what and he's you know the control is is very erratic. But I I, I think if for some reason he if for if for some reason you know years and years down the road that hitting doesn't click for him at the major league level, you could just put him on the mound and he'll one day throw you know ninety nine a hundred miles an hour out of the bullpen with a breaking ball and hope he can throw enough strikes. So I, I think it is a, a backup option for him. A little Christian Bethencourt backup plan. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we see guys who just did, you know, Kenley Jansen was a catcher. <laughs> it just a catcher who couldn't really hit, but Oh, now he goes on the mound and discovers this cutter of death and, <laughs> and can just be a, a totally dominant reliever. So you don't really see it much the other way around. You don't really, it's very rare to see somebody develop as a pitcher and then say, uh, pitching doesn't work out for me. Let me try my hand as a hitter. Yeah. Usually it's all right. The hitting didn't work out, but this guy has a huge arm. Let's try him on the mound and, and see what we can squeeze out of him. Yeah, no doubt. As we're talking about these guys, I'm really struck by how athletic and just the, the amount of freak athletes in this class specifically seems well above average i don't know the best way to kind of quantify that and compare between classes this might be something where i spend some time talking with scouts and and seeing how they view the athleticism of the high school class but i think it's probably like i feel reasonably safe saying this is the best class of athletes 
and especially up the middle athletes that I've covered, which again, is not too long. 2018 was the first year that I did the draft by myself here, but I, I really want to know how this class stacks up in terms of high school athletes compared to like, is there another high school class that really jumps out to you in recent years that have just had a ton of athletes? Cause I mean, we've talked about a number of them today. Bubba Chandler is a freak athlete. Khalil Watson is Jordan Lawler. Um, Joshua Baez, Benny Montgomery, Will Taylor, who we haven't really talked about Jay Allen and Florida. I mean, James Wood, who I didn't mention, who's ranked at the very top of the class. And I'm sure there are plenty of guys that I'm not thinking about. I mean, Thatcher Hurd maybe isn't the most explosive athlete, but just has really impressive body control. Lonnie White Jr. Yeah, I mean, they're just, we can keep Penn naming State them football and naming commit. them. Yeah. Exactly. There's tons of football commits. They're guys who, who really can get after it on the basketball court. And even the guys who aren't playing other sports, it just seems like there are a ton of athletes in this class. I'm really excited to see if, given the... 2020 evaluation period with with fewer college games in the spring with fewer summer events at the college level that teams really put a lot of emphasis on um, and just with the strength of the high school class all of those factors combined are we going to have a draft year where in the top five rounds or so maybe the top 10 rounds we see more high school players and I don't necessarily mean more high school players overall but like a significantly uh a bigger percentage of high school players taken this year than the last several years where it's really trended more and more college heavy. I'm very curious to see how that plays out. Well, I don't think a lot of the, at least on the hitting side, I don't think a lot of the college hitters are <laughs> doing much to, mm -hmm. to push themselves up the, the board, maybe a few, few exceptions here and there. No, I think you're right. I mean, JJ recently wrote a piece uh, on the site talking about two, preseason All-Americans, two first-team preseason All-Americans, and Judd Fabian and Alex Benelis, who are trending down. Um, Matt McClain has trended down from where we had him started out. I think last summer we had Matt McClain as like a – maybe even a top-five guy in the class. Um, but he's being talked about more as like a middle of the first round or even a little bit later than that at this point. Um, the corner infield class and, and corner infield at the college level is probably um, – you can take that position a little bit more comfortably out of college than high school, but the corner infield class is fairly abysmal right now. There aren't any big mashers at third base or first base that we have in like the top 100 range. They're not a ton. Um, it's Benelis who struggled. It's Zach Geloff at Virginia, who maybe is more of a second or third round talent than a true first round talent. Uh, we don't have any Spencer Torkelson type first baseman who you could just really have a ton of conviction in their offensive tools where you really don't care about their defense. I mean, guys like Nico Cavadas and Alex Terrell uh, in the ACC have pretty big power as first baseman, but they have pretty significant swing and miss concerns as well. So yeah, I think you're right with, with the lack of college bats outside of basically South Frelick and Henry Davis to this point, and I guess we could throw Luca Tresh in there as well. He's a, he's a fairly significant riser. Um, it, it's been a challenge for the college hitting in this class and, and entering the year teams were skeptical of how good the college class was. I think there are some people who were optimistic that because players didn't have time to establish themselves last spring, last summer, that there would be a number of players who kind of stepped forward and established themselves this spring. Um, 
but I, I would have to say teams are probably still a little bit disappointed with the number of college bats you can feel good about in the first round. So I'd imagine it's going to be a lot of college arms and a lot of high school hitters uh, early this year, at least as we yeah. stand today. What do you make of Jaden Hill now? LSU right-hander who looked like he could have been a top 10 pick potentially, but what he has a torn UCL, he's, he's going to have Tommy John surgery. It's a, or I assume he's going to have Tommy John surgery. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a pretty big, pretty big bummer, obviously. But what, what do you, what do you make of his draft status at this point? Yeah, that was tough to see because, and I'm curious if for him it's more impactful. I don't necessarily think the injury is the biggest question with him. I think it's the innings and the timing of the industry or in the timing of the injury, I should say. Because last year, in the last two years in college, he was a reliever. He's thrown 51 total innings in his college career. I'm looking up to see what specifically he threw his first two years, but he didn't throw much either year. In 2019, he threw just 10 innings uh, in two starts. In 2020, out of the bullpen, he threw 11 innings over four games. Uh, Obviously, with the shortened season in 2020, he didn't really get a chance to uh, establish more of a resume in college. And then this year was kind of the year that he needed to, to prove it, prove that he could start, prove that his stuff would hold up in that role and prove that he could just pitch a, a full season. Like many other pitchers, Jack Leiter was also in this category, but I think more, more so than Leiter, Hill needed to show that he could handle a starting role. Uh, and now obviously with the injury, he's not going to get a chance to do that. And while he was pretty good in his first two starts, he really struggled um, in his last four, uh, he, he lasted just one out against Oral Roberts, really got hit around. He never really showed the same slider that he showed last year. And now there are questions about how hittable his fastball is. So there were a lot of questions that kind of popped up early this spring. And now he doesn't have a chance to kind of bounce back and, and prove that he can handle the role and that his stuff will show up in a, in a starting in a starting role over a full season against SEC hitting. So there are a lot of questions with him. It's a very high risk, high reward kind of profile at this point. And I would have to look to see how many pitchers have gone in the first round or the top half of the first round with just 51 innings under their belt. Cause I would imagine a lot of the other pitchers who are first round talents who are dealing with injury they had a, a typical freshman and sophomore year. They didn't have a COVID year that really ruined another whole year in addition to their injury year. Um, so I, I almost think of this one a little bit similar to, to JT Ginn in the sense that Ginn is a guy who entered the year for us last year at number 12, kind of a top 10, fringe top 10 talent in the class. Uh, and then he Ginn got injured after throwing just three innings in his draft year. Um, but before that, he had thrown 86 innings and really shown an ability to handle a starting role in the SEC, showed a three-pitch mix. I think he showed better command than scouts thought he would have out of high school. So in some ways, it's similar, but in some ways, Ginn even did more with just two years of school in, in one full year, whereas Jaden Hill never really put it together as a starter. So I, I think we'll probably – I would imagine there are teams that are still very high on his talent. But he, he, it probably is going to be an overslot deal later. Maybe it's a team that has a number of picks. Maybe a team like the Reds, who has a compensation pick after the first round and has a pick in the first supplemental round. Maybe if he doesn't go in the first round, he's an overpay there. 
but I have to imagine he's also a candidate to go back to school and really bet on himself and prove it. So it'll be interesting mm. to see what happens with him. But, but I, I feel like with the way the industry was talking about his talent prior to his injury, I feel like there'll be enough teams that are still in on him and ready to give him a chance that they would, they would take that chance. But conservative teams certainly are going to have a really tough time figuring out what to do with him now. Yeah. Cause again, like you mentioned, he was really good in 2019. He went out and handled a, a starting role. Like mm-hmm. you said, threw strikes, missed a lot of bats. He was, he was very effective when he was healthy. Jaden Hill I mean, we really only have, like you said, a, a, a very small sample size of college innings for him and a very small sample size of him as a starter mm-hmm. in college. And that track record this year in college as a starter, it's not great. <laughs> it's ERA north of six, some some scattered control. Mm-hmm. It's not like a crazy strikeout rate he, he does throw hard he has a a really good changeup, but mm-hmm. just between the track record that he has and now you add in this injury where it, 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 that that obviously adds another risk factor mm-hmm. for him as far as his his durability being able to hold up as a starter but also just his his Overall, I would say lack of effectiveness when when he was on the mound mm-hmm. this year. I I I would not feel comfortable taking him. For me, even in in the back of the first round, I I think there's other guys who I would take. I would certainly take before before him. I mean, I, I wish he would have stayed healthy so we could have seen whether he could have rebounded in in the second half of of the season for LSU. But for for right now, I I just see the opportunity cost of of guys who would be middle of the first round, back of the first round mm-hmm. type guys is is just too much for for me when there's when there's other better alternatives there. Now again, like you said, maybe it's maybe it's after that range where he goes and and he could you know for for like like you said maybe it's a, it's a team with with a lot of extra picks and to go with that a bunch of extra bonus pool money so mm-hmm. at that point the opportunity cost of choosing hill over over whoever else is on the board maybe that becomes more appealing but yeah for me i, I i'm sure there i'm sure like you said there are teams that were really in on hill mm-hmm. early on which is you know why we have him uh, at least to this point, we went before the injury ranked so high, and I'm sure some of those teams are going to say, "All right, well, we don't view the you know Tommy John surgery as a major ding to a, a player stock." Certainly, we've seen some teams mm-hmm. take that approach <laughs> in in the draft. So I, I I could still see some team popping him pretty high, but personally, I I, I wouldn't feel super comfortable taking that risk on him with with a high pick. Yeah, really quickly, Ginn, when he was selected last year, just I think this kind of shows how teams handle or at least have handled these players. Ginn went with uh, the Mets at the number 52 overall pick in the second round, but he got an overslot bonus for $2.9 million. Uh, that was the second most of all the second round picks after Jared Kelly with the White Sox, who was a similar first round talent, second round overpay. Um, so I think they're probably 
is an avenue for him to get a significant amount of money as an overpay selection, over slot selection. But again, it'll just depend on the team's um, tolerance for risk. And for you, you mentioned personally not not feeling comfortable with that. Would the concern for you be more of the the injury or just the lack of track record that he's established um, with the injury compounded with the COVID year? Probably both. I mean, mm-hmm. if this, if like, let's say like, all right, let's, so let's say Kumar Rocker had Tommy John surgery. I, I would still, you know, tomorrow, let's say I would, I would still feel comfortable taking Kumar Rocker in the first round because of, the 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 success that he's had and that he's proven when he's been healthy the the track record of Tommy John surgery is pretty good although obviously it does add an, another element of of durability risk for a pitcher but when Kumar Rocker has been on the mound in the SEC he's been really really good whereas Jaden Hill we, we just can't say anything anywhere near the same thing as as far as his track record so to me it's it's a little bit of both but but especially the just the gap in in performance between those two would would be a pretty big difference for me okay let me let me throw another one at you then and kind of split the difference between performance and just overall resume and innings what would you think about Jack Leiter, if he suffered a similar injury and it was done today and he had just 57.2 innings total because, again, unlike Hill, Jack Leiter has been pretty electric so far this year against SEC pitching. He was very good last year in three starts before he got to conference play. So how how would you kind of describe your risk tolerance for a guy like Leiter who has been effective but again, like Hill, doesn't have a ton of innings under his belt relative to a typical first-round pitcher. I, I I would probably view it similar to to Rocker. Uh, we, we've just seen Jack Leiter be so dominant. I mean, one of the most dominant stretches for for a college pitcher that I think we've ever seen especially at, at i know jj threw out a he come he said this is the most dominant he's seen a pitcher since steven strasberg and i think 15 minutes after jj tweeted that jack Leiter gave up his first hit in like 20 innings so he he certainly cursed him with that comparison but yeah so again like so if, if let's say Leiter had tj tomorrow i i would still feel comfortable taking jack Leiter with a first round pick i don't know exactly where but he, I, I would still feel comfortable taking him there just because of the way we've seen his his stuff play and, and his stuff and, and his ability to perform and get results in the SEC that we just haven't seen from, uh, from, from Jaden Hill. Yeah. I still am really high on Jaden Hill. And I've always been high on him. And I think part of it is, and we wrote about this in, in the story about Jaden Hill getting that injury, but there have been a few studies that have compared pre-draft Tommy John arms to pitchers who haven't underwent Tommy John surgery. And the success rate for those two different groups of pitchers is about the same. They didn't find any huge gap in performance or success at the pro level, which is encouraging to me. And I think in general now with, with where medicine is at, 
the Tommy John is just not super scary. It's never good. Again, just, I think you made the comment about just future durability concerns. Um, but the success rate of that surgery is fairly good now. And what I really love about Hill, there are two things, or there are really three things that I really like about him. The fastball command. I really think that when, when he has been comfortable and in his zone and before he started getting barreled, I thought he showed a really good ability to locate the fastball in all four quadrants of the zone. I love his changeup. I wish he would have used it more in college. I don't, I don't know what it is about college baseball. There are only a few pitchers who really throw changeup at a high level, but I feel like his changeup is his most consistent pitch, maybe overall. Got a ton of swings and misses. He locates it at a phenomenal level. So I love those two attributes, and I really think I, I like his delivery and athleticism on the mound. So if there's a team who thinks that they can make a few tweaks, whether that's with his, his grip on the ball or his slot, uh, to get maybe a little bit better movement or life on the fastball, or even if it's just a matter of him being able to be in an environment where he doesn't feel like every game is like a win-loss. Like in college, the wins are more important than at the minor league level where your development is the most important thing. So I feel like I like a lot of the attributes that he brings to the table, a lot of the innate skills that he has. Like the command, I think, is just really impressive. And we have seen the slider in the past. I don't know the specific reason why it wasn't quite as good this year um but but i'm still very high on him and i think a team any team that has shown an ability to get a lot out of pitchers i would love to see him in that player development system to see what they could do with him because again like like jt again i'm still very high on jt again i want to see what these guys do and i think they've got a lot of upside still so i don't think this is like over and done with hill um and i'm still very high on him but obviously it sucks for any any pitcher uh, to have an injury like this, especially with with how 2020 has been, I do agree with you that somebody is going to pay him a lot of money, or is going to be willing to pay him a lot of money. I mean, I think back to Michael Machuela when he was at Duke, and I I believe maybe the summer before, he he might have been the number one prospect in in the draft going into his draft year in 2015 if, if if not he was at least being in he was he was in that conversation of being a the number one pick or a yeah, top our, five. our draft report on him said that in the spring of his sophomore year he was among the earliest group of players to throw his name into the discussion to go number one overall in 2015 so yeah and so he at that time it, it's a little bit different with him because he also had a, he, he had back issues too so that's sort of a confounding factor, I, I suppose. But he, he he had arm problems that year. He had Tommy John surgery, and he 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 had more of a track record, frankly, than Jaden Hill did. It wasn't a super long track record. It was, again, that that was <laughs> a pretty big durability risk factor with him. Where I, I was never convinced that he was gonna be able to handle a starter's workload, but all you need is one team that believes, <laughs> which is what the Rangers did. They took him the third round. They paid him $2 million. So if, if that's kind of the, the outcome that happens for Hill, uh, I, I would not be surprised if, if we see some team taking a, a similar type, type chance like that. Yeah, and just to your comment about Matuela, how much he pitched in college, he threw 141 innings over three years. 
Uh, started seven games as a freshman, threw 57, mostly out of the bullpen. Then he had 11 starts in 2014, 58 innings. And then in 2015, he threw just 25. So really, every year he, he had more work under his belt than Hill. And I also think it's worth pointing out, you talked about Matuela's medical history. Jaden Hill also broke his collarbone in high school. Mm. And that was one of the reasons Like he, we had him as a top 100 prospect coming out of high school. But he also played football and broke his right collarbone, um, which I don't know how much that would add to the medical concern for teams. Um, but it certainly would be a factor in some capacity. Um, I think both of those are, are more, I would be more hopeful for them than like a back injury or back issues, but at least it's worth noting. Yeah, I, I think somebody will, somebody will take a chance. I, I wouldn't feel super comfortable doing it if I was calling the shots in the draft, <laughs> but there are, like you said, there's Nationals or the Mets seem very willing to to take those players are a like couple, that. <laughs> yeah, the, the Nationals definitely jumped to mind as a team that would yeah. not be dissuaded by a uh, gigantic pitcher who throws really hard. <laughs> as yes, a, he, he fits the physicality requirements. Tommy John. He fits the injury requirements. Let me actually see. There was one point where like, so it was Seth Romero, Mason Denneberg, and Jack, no, Jackson Rutledge wasn't injured, but Seth Romero, did he have? maybe that was just after I felt like for a while there, there were a couple pitchers in a row that the nationals took who had dealt with injuries, but Mason Denenberg had some biceps issues, bicep tendonitis issues. Uh, I might be overstating. Oh no, he did have surgery in high school. Okay. So yeah, either way, the nationals do have a little bit of a history of, of taking a chance on guys who've been injured and, and not really being too afraid of that. But um, did you want to talk yeah. about the, 20 round draft uh, last week, I believe we reported that MLB informed teams that the draft was going to be 20 rounds. That was met with a lot of outrage on Twitter as probably should be expected. Um, but we knew since last year when MLB and MLBPA agreed to their little COVID negotiations that this draft was going to be between 20 and 30 after the five round draft in 2020. Uh, so teams now have clarity on the exact amount of rounds. I think, the smart money was always on 20 rounds whenever, whenever that minimum was thrown out. I think people just assumed that it was going to be the minimum. Um, the draft slots have been announced, or at least maybe the bonus pools for specific teams because the draft slots are the same this year as they were last year. Um, the Pirates and Rangers have the top two bonus pools in the draft, followed by the Tigers at three. And then I believe after that is the Reds who pick all the way down at number 17. So the Reds are a team that immediately kind of piques my interest as a potential um, focal point in the middle of the first round. They have some pick ammunition. They pick 30 and they pick uh, 35 after their first pick at 17. Uh, so I feel like they might be in a position to, really force a guy down to their pick at number one or get creative with an underslot deal. And then a couple of overslot deals immediately after the first round. So as soon as these pools came out that that was kind of the team that was most in interesting to me, but I'm curious about your thoughts on just bonus pool talk in general, Ben or 20 rounds. If you have any uh, thoughts on either of those. Yeah. I, I think the 20 rounds makes sense. I'm very glad it's not going to be, five rounds. I thought five rounds last year was just a disaster. 
I, I hate the five round draft. There's yep. just you and every scout in the industry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think only the MLB owners liked <laughs> that oh, yeah. one. But yeah, the the twenty rounds. To to me, it, it the the you know I guess people there's people who what who want more rounds in the draft. I think there are always going to be people who want as much as possible. And regardless of the new minor league system, I think there are probably people who will fight for 40 because 40 is what we had and 40 seems more fair to players. And you can point to a handful of players that have panned out in those rounds. I think JJ had a story talking about the opening day rosters, like 5% of the the players on opening day rosters were post 20 round guys. So there, I think no matter where you drew the line, I think there would always be players who you could have taken later that might have panned out, regardless of where you drew. I mean, we used to have 60 rounds, and there were players in that range who've made it before. It got cut down to 40. So I don't think there's a perfect round range to satisfy everyone. I don't think that's ever going to happen. But I do think somewhere in the 20 to 30 round range is probably about right for the new minor league system. I was asked recently what my preferred number of rounds would be if I was picking. And I've always thought, at least since the minor league stuff has happened, that 25 rounds seems about right. I think I'd be happy with that, but I'm, I'm curious if, if that's about where you're at or you think there should be more. So for me, it's not, I mean, I, I do think you need more than like five rounds of a draft if you're yeah, going to have a draft, right? <laughs> but but to me, it's it's not so much about the number of rounds that you have it's it's more about the overall structure of the draft and and one of the key elements with that is what you're allowed to spend on non-drafted free agents yep and i've i've talked about this with with people on the international side too as mlb is planning and and preparing for an international draft and people in Latin America have, you know, all sorts of opinions on that and and how it should be structured. If, if you have a 20 round draft or, or let's say you have a 10 round draft again, 10 rounds, 20 rounds, what's the maximum that you can spend on a non-drafted free agent because if it's $20,000 or $10,000, well, then that's very restrictive both for the clubs and for the players. But let's say the it's great for the owners that have been, don't forget that. Yes. The real, <laughs> the real victims. Yes. So, but, but let's say it's 150,000. Or we could make it two hundred thousand. We we could make it a higher number if you want. I mean, in the internet in the old international or, or the previous international system, when teams could go over their bonus pools, they would be in a penalty box and they couldn't sign anybody for two years for more than three hundred thousand dollars. Well, teams just went over their bonus pools because they realized, well, three hundred thousand dollars, you can get some pretty good players for that money. And for a player, that's pretty good money too, right? So in in the draft, if you cut the draft off at 
let's all right, let's let's keep it at twenty rounds, but let's say you could spend up to a hundred and fifty thousand dollars on a non drafted free agent without it counting against your bonus pool. Well, if I'm a player, why 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 would I want the draft then to go to twenty five or thirty rounds when the bonus pool value for those picks is probably going to be what like eighty thousand dollars like it's it's going to be pretty small yeah well at and that point i would rather have fewer rounds and have the ability as a player to pick which team i want to go to, to so i have more freedom in that case i have more freedom to choose my team and and teams also then have more freedoms at that point too as far as okay we want this guy after the 20th round but uh you know we got to use our 22nd round pick on or we want to use our 22nd round pick on this guy Hmm. hope he's there in the 27th round like well no let's just go all let's all go out and and try to recruit if if I'm the Blue Jays. I, I'm going to have to compete against these other clubs to recruit this player into my organization. We can all offer $150,000. So there's, you know, freedom for the, for the clubs. There's some freedom for the players, obviously within the restrictions of being limited to $150,000. Mm-hmm. I would rather both as a player and as a team have a 20 round draft with that system rather than have more rounds and more restrictions. Mm. But if they're going to say it's 20 rounds and then this, the most you can sign an NDFA for is $20,000. All right. Now we're getting into that. That's very restrictive Mm -hmm. as far as, you know, I'm a player, I'm going to sign, you know, and I, okay. I have my choice of teams now as, as a player after the 20th round, but I'm going to sign for barely any money, especially knowing I'm not going to make, you know, I know I'm going to make what nine grand a year for, you know, for my a ball Mm -hmm. and double a salary for, for the next few years. That's, that's pretty restrictive. Yeah. So to me, it's it's not so much just about how many rounds it is. It's it's about the entire structure of the draft, and, and in particular, that maximum bonus amount for NDFAs. Mm-hmm. And, and I should say here that uh, as of right now, teams can spend up to one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars on picks after the tenth round without it counting towards their bonus allotment. So you've got your bonus pool that is matched to the slot values of picks in the top ten rounds. And so after that, teams have up to 125000 without that counting towards the bonus pool. And then, at least as of last year, non-drafted free agents were capped uh, at $20,000 bonuses, just so you guys are aware of like what the structure currently is. So, so just to clarify, you're saying that that, that $125,000 amount that you can spend on a player that doesn't count against the pools that's for the 11th to 20th rounds yeah so i'm pulling up the 11th round last year just to give an example or 2019 uh, yeah last year wouldn't work <laughs> somebody i saw somebody tweeted they were like 
When I say last year, I yeah, mean yeah. 2019. <laughs> I was yeah, like, so yeah, that's perfect. Like if you look at, I'm trying to see who maybe one of the more notable um, 2011, like, like, so in the 11 to 15 range for a lot of teams, they use it as an area to overslot high school players. They'll get their money savers, their mm-hmm. college money savers in like the six to 10 round range. Some teams start earlier than others, depending on what they did in the first three rounds. But for example, with the Braves, a player they really liked was Von Grissom. They took him with the 11th, their 11th round pick and gave him a $347,500 bonus. So the first $125,000 does not come out of the bonus pool, but everything above that counts towards the bonus pool. Um, and, and to this point in the draft, in, in the amateur draft, teams have not been willing to exceed the 5% overage um, that you can get into before you have to incur pick penalties. Um, and until a team does that, I'm just going to assume that, that no team will. I was asked recently if, if it would be a, an interesting strategy to just blow by the bonus pools and just incur the penalties and lose picks in future rounds. But so far, no, no team has decided that that was worth the risk. Uh, it would be very interesting if a team decided to just say screw it and, and go crazy one year and see what they could do. Uh, but so far that hasn't happened. So that's typically how the draft has worked in this current bonus pool and slotting system. But really curious to see how much the draft changes in the next CBA. Uh, I don't really have any specific intel on what it will be. We've talked a lot on this podcast about things that we want and that we think would be good for the game. And that would just be more fun for the fan and better for players, better for scouts. Um, So there are a lot of factors here. I don't know that I have, the perfect answer, but I do think Ben that in general, I tend to agree with you that just allowing more um, freedom for teams, um, more options for players is the way to go uh, in an ideal world. We certainly don't live in that, but we can hope. Well, I'm just, I'm glad it's not five rounds. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. We'll take the wins where we can get them. 20 rounds sounds, sounds great after last year. Um, but yeah, another interesting thing, and I'm not sure if I've talked about it on the podcast, I've definitely written about this before, is I feel like once the draft is completed this year, I think every team is going to be more excited about the guys they get in the four to 10 round range than maybe they ever have um, because of two factors primarily. One, last year's draft class was very deep in general uh, before we knew that it was going to be just five rounds. So when it was cut off, to just five rounds, that meant a ton of really good players were coming back and probably more players that would have come back in an average draft class year. Uh, most of the people that I talked to thought last year's draft was above average in terms of depth. So the fact that there's that many more players back in the pool, the fact that there, are, well, there aren't too many high school players that, are, that were eligible last year who will be eligible this year, um, but the increased volatility or the lack of consensus that you're going to get this year compared to a normal year it's going to be less consensus than normal again, because teams didn't have all the evaluation time they typically have. Uh, Players haven't had as much time to kind of show teams who they are. Uh, And I think the way teams tackle things based on how, how heavily they use a model, how heavily they rely on their area scouts evaluations is really going to put teams all over the board in terms of consensus on the class. And I think probably most years the consensus falls apart quicker than and people probably think, but I think that's especially going to be true this year. And I think we're going to be talking to a lot of scouting directors or just scouts in general 
who are really excited about what their team wound up doing in that six to 10 round range where you're just going to have a ton of guys who you feel really good about. Like I was talking to a scout the other day and saying like, we were just after a few calls, I just heard a lot of, a lot of scouts talking about players they really liked as four to seven range talents. And I've heard of, of many more scouts throwing out those players more than, more than previous years, if that makes sense. Well, and you wrote about Matt, I'm going to mispronounce his name, Matt Mikulski. Yeah. At, at Fordham. I mean, it's just, it just is an example of a guy who, you know, if, if somebody took him in the five round in the top five rounds, maybe, you know, maybe it's like a fourth or fifth round pick last year wouldn't have looked out of place. Right. No, not at all. And, and now he comes out this year and he's been, I mean, his, his stuff, like, like you wrote his, his stuff is, is up. He's, he's been electric. He's, he's been dominating. So there are definitely guys who got, who just got, mm-hmm. you know, shafted. Yeah. I mean, year. two South Carolina arms, Thomas Farr, Brandon Jordan, Thomas Farr has come back and looked really good uh, higher up, at least in terms of where we started them. Tommy Mace is a pitcher who, probably fit in the top two rounds last year had a high high bonus ask and came back and he's been really good this year so there are just a lot of players like that who are back and in many cases better yeah and I mean you're, you're saying this about the 2021 draft I imagine it's going to be even more so per, perhaps for the 2022 and 23 drafts because then like you said there's not I don't think there's any high school players who, who would have been well. You know, I guess they could have cut it down to junior college. So there there are some high school players. Yeah, Ricky Tiedemann from, is probably the most prominent junior college player who would fit that criteria. But yeah, most yeah. of the high school guys. So that's I mean that's more of a typical year, I guess. You, you have guys going to JUCO, but there are a lot of guys who went to college. Obviously, you know Kevin Parada, Dylan Cruz. We've we've talked a lot about, but. Um, you know, there, there are a bunch of guys who just would have normally been guys who would sign, but out, out of high school in later rounds, whether it's just for a, for a higher overslot bonus or, or, or just your standard sixth, seventh round. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think money. even, even outside of those kind of elite high school players who every year you'll, you'll get a few players who, whether it's because they didn't get the bonus demands or just because they're really betting on themselves and think they can become a first rounder. You always get those sorts of players. I mean, Kumar was one such player. He was a first round talent, but but even the guys, yeah, even the guys like Von Grissom, who again is an overslot guy after the 10th and looks, or at least we haven't seen him too much, but it, it sounds like he's been pretty good in pro ball. Like, those players never had a chance to get that overslot money and go straight to pro ball. So all those guys are in college at some level. So I, I think you're right that the effects of the five round draft, it's not just going to be this year. The depth is going to be increased next year. And in 2023, it probably won't be until the 2024 class where we really get back to normal uh, in, in air quotes, but who knows what the landscape will look like then. By the way, I, I'm, I'm flip-flopping. I don't know if I told you this yet. Uh oh! You I'm made going, fun of me for not picking one, and now you're going to change. You're going to well, change no, your I'm, mind. I'm, yeah, changing your mind. Never do it. No. <laughs> don't ever do it. Don't take new information and change your mind, Ben. Just stick to what you thought initially, and don't give up on that opinion. If I'm if I'm picking one one today, though, I'm going Jack Lighter. What did you I've say been, last time? Your your team rocker last time. I've I've been on. Yeah, I mean, in our mock draft, JJ took took Lighter number one. Mm-hmm. But I've I've coming into the season. 
I mean, I love both of them. I loved, I loved Jack Leiter out of high school. Somebody should have paid him. I don't know if it's even possible. Maybe he was just set on going to school, but I just, I deferred to the track record and I, and I still love Kumar Rocker. I'd yeah. Probably take him number two. No, you're saying <laughs> no, you hate him now. You're only taking him second. But, but yeah, Jack, Jack Leiter has just been so impressive. I mean, all, all, all I wanted to see was just how he would perform in the mm-hmm. SEC, and I think I mean, look, I, I still want to see him do it. Obviously, over a full season, not to this pace. He's allowed to give up more than a hit every other game. That's, <laughs> that's that would be acceptable to me. I'm but, really curious when the first like bump in the road is going to come for him. Like, I have to imagine it's going to happen at some point. He he can't be this good the whole year, can he? I almost feel like I almost feel like he's going to get better. Because <laughs> not not that he's going to perform better, because he's not. Yeah. That's just not really possible. Was he going to have like a ERA of like? Hey, he's given a up dime. two earned runs this year, <laughs> so he ain't but perfect. It, it, two it runs just, in forty two innings, Ben. It almost know. just seems like he can just blow through these lineups with his fastball because his fastball is so good, and and and, and I think he's going to continue to be able to do that mm-hmm. against minor league, you know, double A, triple A, and and even to an extent against major league hitters because the just the velocity the life the way his fastball plays especially up in the zone yeah. is just so dominant it's such a yeah, swing he's that, pitch. Just shorter right-hander with a, a fastball that plays up has really good carry it's it, i i almost think i i think he has a really good curveball and it's almost that he just hasn't even used it or it hasn't even been at its best mm-hmm. in some of his starts that he's just carve through these lineups with just his fastball I, I think once he gets that breaking ball going and starts mixing that in even more it, it, it's it's just gonna get better which sounds crazy to say again not saying he's gonna <laughs> perform better but I, I think he's even better than what he's shown if that sounds crazy so far in college through 57 innings 57.2 he has a 0.78 era he has struck out 93 batters and walked 24 um so yeah he's been fairly good i think i'm i'm still sticking with the underdogs i've got a little bit of a track record of really liking the guys just after the top players in in the adley rutschman draft that was a big bobby wood jr fan again none, none of these comments mean i didn't like the top player but I was always really high on Bobby Witt. And then last year in the 2020 draft where most people had Spencer Torkelson as a top guy, I really loved Austin Martin. So I think I'm going to stick with uh, stick with my guy, Jordan Lawler, you know, Jack Leiter can strike out all the players he wants. I love the, I love the tools. He shortstop, man. Yeah. By the way, Kumo rocker has a 0.84 ERA. It just doesn't with cut about, it, man. Yeah, with about 13 Ks <laughs> per nine, cut his walk rate a little bit from obviously a small sample. Yeah, almost last a year, twice but... as large ERA as Jack Leiter with two fewer Ks per nine. So just not cutting it, you know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> he's he's facing uh he's facing harder hitters. They they put up their good lineup in the <laughs> no <laughs> I mean I it's a great control group. We should probably know. bring this up. Are you at all concerned about the the dip in velocity over his last two outings? Because uh, I've I've thrown this by a couple scouts, few directors, um, and I think there are different degrees of concern. Some people that I've talked to said no, it's not too huge of a concern as long as it doesn't happen con- consistently, because Rocker has 
uh, had drops in his velocity in previous years at times, and he's always bounced back from that. Um, some scouts have mentioned the weather that he's pitched in and just decided not to overreact to it and commented that he was still really effective with lower velocity. But is that a concern for you at this point? And if not, how much longer would he have to be pitching at that sort of velocity before you were concerned? So just to explain to people, so what is the velocity drop? He's been more in the like 90 to 92 range. I believe his last two outings where he was sitting kind of in the mid nineties prior to that. Yeah. It's to me, it's more something to monitor. I mean, we're fortunate to draft. (laughs) If if the draft was in a week, that would be a, a much bigger, factor i mean it, 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 it is i will say it is part of why i would have if the draft was today i would go with lighter over rocker but if if his velocity bounces back to where it was early in the season you know then it's not a big concern for me now if he's still if he's still pitching in this range where it's where the velocity is a little bit down then mm-hmm then yeah, then I think it is more of a, more of a concern, but for right now, it's just, it's just something to, something to monitor more than something where I'm freaking out over. That makes sense. All right. Um, with all of that out of the way, I think we're going to take a quick break uh, and then we'll be right back. Thank you to everyone who has listened to this point. And we're back. Um, we're probably going to jump into a few listener questions uh, and then get out of your ears. But Ben, we've got a number of international questions for you on this episode. Uh, the first one comes from Dan Brockett on Twitter. And again, before we get into these, you can send any and all of your questions to us on Twitter at futurepropod. I've tried to start sending out a few tweets before we record. So people kind of get alerted to the fact and can throw anything in if they want to. But at any point, if you think of a question you want, either myself or Ben to answer or both of us, um, throw it at us there and you can follow Ben on Twitter at Ben Badler and you can follow me on Twitter at Carlos A. Colazzo. Um, but Dan Brockett on Twitter asks, I have a question for Ben Badler on the next podcast. How present are the Braves internationally slash in Latin America post sanctions? Was there a loss of presence that they had to recover from or were they there but handcuffed? Has the pandemic affected that? And do you expect any of the effects of the sanctions to linger in the next few years? Pretty good question. So the, I mean, one of the main penalties was that MLB removed a ton of players. (laughs) They had signed from previous classes from their organization. That was one of the big penalties. So that in theory would have a, a ramification on them for that would linger for a few more years. Uh, the, the reality is that most of those players just, (laughs) <laughs> doesn't they don't seem to have amounted at this point into very good prospects so i don't know if that's a good thing or or not but <laughs> um that you know that that was one big part of the penalty the the second one was for you know they they couldn't sign anybody for a year for more than $10,000 so that was very restrictive for them then they had their, I believe it was their bonus pool cut in half. So they were still active in, 
you know, this current signing period, the one that was supposed to start July 2nd, 2020, but got pushed back to January 15th this year, they signed Ambioris Tavares shortstop, uh, or at least a shortstop for now from the Dominican Republic. He's already in their top 30 prospects right now in their, in their organization. They, they actually got hurt by MLB changing the rules in the middle of the process. They didn't target the Braves or, or it wasn't just directed at the Braves, but MLB when the pandemic hit and, and the season shut down in March and MLB and, and the players association kind of got together and rewrote the rules for the season. One of the rules they changed was they said, you're not allowed to trade for any additional bonus pool money anymore, or you're, you can't trade away your bonus pool money either, obviously would be the other side of that. So the Braves, you know, they were going to sign another shortstop, Jefferson Teneo from the Dominican Republic. Uh, but because they couldn't trade for any more bonus pool money like they were planning to, they they couldn't sign him. So he ended up signing with the Rangers instead. So that actually kind of handcuffed the, the Braves pretty significantly. Uh, but going forward after this signing period, they they don't have any more restrictions from their previous signing violations. I expect them to be very involved in in the twenty one class, which will probably start on January fifteenth, uh, two thousand twenty two, um, and and similarly for two thousand twenty two and twenty three. Now again, like we've talked about on this podcast, the CBA expires after this 2021 season. So this, the 2022 class, there could be an international draft. I would think more than likely if it's not 2022, we'll have an international draft in 2023. Obviously this all has to be collectively bargained with the union. So there's no guarantees on, on what's going to happen. But I, I think if, if, for some reason there is no draft in, in some ways the Braves almost had a, a head start in, in some ways on the 2022 and the 2023 class, because, well, all right, if, if we know we, we can't spend any money in our, you know, 2019 class and we're, you know, we're facing pretty significant restrictions for our 2020 class, then let's, all right, you know, once once we kind of have a, a sense of who we're going to be getting for 2020 with with Tavares and, and probably they thought Taneo obviously, which which didn't end up happening, then let's move on to focus on some of the bigger fish in in the upcoming classes, right? So, I I, I think if if there if there is no international draft for 2022 and and 23, um, you're you're going to see them be very heavily involved in in those classes and and certainly for the upcoming uh 2021 classes as well you're you're going to see the same thing um but if, if, sorry go ahead. go ahead no no go ahead i was going to jump into the next question but if you have more to add i was i was just going to say and you did the braves top 30 for us carlos i mean you you can see the damage that those mm. 
signing penalties have had on the, you know, 11 to 30 range of that system where usually, you know, you, you have pretty good depth of players mm-hmm. and, and the Braves do have a good top 10, but you look in the 11 to 30 and it's like, well, where are the international players? Yeah. There were very few international players to speak of and they really needed players like Michael Harris and Von Grissom to take a step forward to make you feel comfortable about kind of the talent base in the lower levels of the minors. So getting some Latin infusion in the future will be a a very big help for the system uh, in the next few years. Um, Bradley Buckner on Instagram asks or said, yeah, he asked, can you elaborate on the difference between scouting high school and college hitters? Uh, We talked about the differences between high school pitchers and college hitters. I don't know if it was last time, but in a previous episode, uh, and Bradley wants to know basically the same thing for hitters. Um, I think the most obvious thing that comes to mind for me is teams can have a much greater degree of confidence in a hit tool and projecting a hit tool at the college level because you have larger samples um, and more meaningful statistical profiles for these players, and they are playing to a much greater degree against better pitching um, and pitching to where you can really go in and evaluate a hitter and the performance matters more at the high sc- than the high school level for players in the deep South or in the North. Um, there are a lot of high school leagues that aren't great in terms of competition. I was talking with uh, Malachi Knight, who is a Pacific Northwest outfielder, a really good hitter in this 2021 class. And he was part of a team who got together and went down to Arizona so they could play uh, so they could play earlier in the season for starters and so they could play against better competition and he he told me the difference in quality of competition was was obvious um, and he felt that he developed more as a hitter because he was facing better pitchers on a regular basis he said his league in the northwest um, just wasn't that good so you have a lot of hitters who are facing pitchers who are just high school pitchers, just normal players who love baseball and want to play the game, don't necessarily have a future um, at the collegiate level or particularly the D1 level or even in college at all. So there's, you're very limited in what you can do as a scout when you're watching a hitter face 70 or low 80s pitching with poor off-speed like you kind of expect any of those high school hitters to just dominate that pitching. And so I think there are just, there, there's less you can take away from high school hitter, especially in their high school season, which is why the summer is so important for these high school evaluations for hitters, because that is the time where they are facing a greater uh, or, or more high quality arms, more college level arms, more pro level arms. Um, so I think that's probably the biggest difference Ben, do you have anything that you, that you want to add or or contradict um, from what I said? Yeah, you, it's I mean Joshua Bias, who I mentioned before, outfielder from Massachusetts, and I, I got to see him play a few times. And right, like I don't think any scouts have any questions about his power, right, <laughs> or or his bat speed or or his explosiveness. The question with him is the swing and miss rate with him and watching him this year and and last summer too but again summer is different than seeing him in the spring you know I, I watched him over the summer there was some swing and miss there not an alarming amount I actually thought he managed his at bats 
pretty well seeing him over the summer against some, you know, pretty good high school competition guys who will be, you know, D one pitchers, guys who will get drafted and, and be prospects in, in pro ball. Uh, he wasn't just up there swinging at everything. He, he had a pretty good approach and, and or a pretty solid approach and generally stayed within the strike zone. And then watching him this, this spring and in, in the few games he's played so far, I've, I've seen more of the same. I think in, I've, I've seen all three regular season games that had a scrimmage too. I, I didn't see that, but otherwise I've seen all of his games. He's only swung and missed twice. Um, one of them was in a, I think like a three, one count yesterday where he was just, you know, looking to take advantage of a, a damage count. He's, he's laid off some pretty close pitches that were just outside the strike zone. He, he doubled on a breaking ball I saw from him. So that all looks good. And that's really what I want to see is how does he manage his at bats? How does he recognize pitches, especially breaking balls? and and see his contact rate but like you said there's a huge difference in in the caliber of stuff that he was seeing over the summer uh, or that you see as a college hitter compared to the Massachusetts high school pitching that he's seeing from a schedule that they're cobbling together from teams that are willing to play during the pandemic right now. So it's the, the, the broader point is, is yeah, it, it, it's a lot. You can get a much better feel for how a pitcher reacts to spin, how they recognize breaking balls, their strike zone discipline, their, their ability to handle good velocity in, in different parts of the strike zone. So, you know, I, I would say I'm very encouraged by the things I've seen from Joshua Baez so far this year as a hitter, but it's it's not the same level of confidence that you would have seeing a, uh, a, a college hitter going against, you know, significantly better pitching. So I, I, I would, I would agree with a lot of the things that, that you said, and especially around, you know, a, a hitter's ability to, um, manage the strike zone, yep. uh, his plate discipline, and, and his pitch recognition. Um, that that can be a little bit harder to. I mean, like you, you can still scout it, and, and you and you can see guys who really struggle against it in in high school. But it it it, it takes a little bit more time to recognize and, and appreciate it. I think, or or spot those those red flags. Yeah, no doubt. I think one other thing that I'd add too is. In high school, this happens to some degree in college, but you see it much more commonly at the high school level where you have one really, really good hitter on a team who everyone in the county or the district or the region knows is the best player on the team, and they get pitched around constantly. This happens every year. There are players who you can go in and try and scout a hitter, and you might not see a single swing outside of batting practice before the game. Because there are some players who, I mean, these teams want to win games. They want to win their district. They want to win their conference. And if you're clearly the best player in a lineup of otherwise normal high school hitters, it makes sense from a competitive standpoint to pitch around that guy. Um, I always like when, when teams kind of understand 
what's going on with these prospects and pitch to guys and let them kind of show what they can do. But I understand wanting to win the game, but that happens much more commonly in high school than in college when all of the hitters um, are there for a reason. And you can't, you can't pitch around one player in a college lineup as easily as you could uh, for a high school lineup with a guy like Joshua Byers in it. And, and uh, we've, we've talked about why th- we talked about why this is not true this year, just due to the circumstances with the pandemic in 2020, but normally you have a lot more history with a college hitter than you do with a high school hitter too, right? Like if, if it's a college player, you, you probably have, if, if he was good in high school, you probably have some history with him going back to mm-hmm. when he was, uh, you know, the summer going into his senior year and his senior year of high school, you have probably three years of track record of him playing in college. You probably have multiple years of him playing in, in summer wood bat leagues, uh, playing in hopefully in, in the Cape Cod League or for the U.S. collegiate national team. So you, you have a lot of history. You have a lot of track record there. You, you can build a pretty good amount of history and track record on a high school player too, but you're, you're, you're not normally bearing down on guys, certainly especially not in the spring, on, on underclassmen. So, I mean, look, like, yeah, I've, everybody knows Elijah Green, right, at, at IMG Academy, and you're, gonna go, you're going in to see James Wood. You're going to see Elijah Green there too. Okay, yeah, so for – you know, the, the very, very top guys, you might have some more history on them if, if they're at a big school and a big program. But but otherwise, you just don't have the same level of history and, and track record yeah. scouting a high school player that you do with a college hitter. I think one player who would be a prime example for this is Adrian Del Castillo uh, out of high school. I'm trying to see exactly where we had him ranked, but he was a pretty notable prospect coming out of high school. So he had always shown a knack for putting the barrel on the ball out of high school. And he actually had a wooden bat where there was one white mark on the barrel because he would set up his hands to just square that spot up over and over again. And you could see the mark where he would always barrel the ball. Um, so he had established a, a long track record of hitting at a high level in high school. And then he also had two years at Miami where he really hit a, at a high level. So you do have that longer track record. I think that's another really good point to make. Um, or you'll have players who maybe you didn't have a ton of confidence in, but you knew what their questions were, their holes were, and you saw in college how they addressed those holes or uh, tweaked an approach or got stronger uh, and are now different from what they were in the past. So you can kind of see how their development has gone over the last two to three years, depending on when they're eligible. So I think those are all uh, important factors. Um Moving on to the next one, we have County of King 718 on Instagram asks, are there any kids in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut who you like, position player and pitcher? Um, there are a lot of kids in those states. Uh, we've, I think we've talked about it on this podcast, but if we haven't, the Northeast is exceptional this year. And, and I think this was a draft-specific question. It was left open-ended, but I'm assuming it's from a draft perspective. In just those three states, we have 15 players who rank on the top 300 right now. Um, there is a ton of pitching. There's also a few really good call or catchers generally. Uh, Joe Mack is the highest ranked player of those states. Uh, and he has really impressive offensive and defensive tools. 
catcher from New York. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then we talked about him in the last episode, I believe. Chase Petty is right-handed pitcher out of New Jersey and has probably the best pure stuff, at least from the right-handers of the high school class. Maybe Maddox Bruns has a case for best pure stuff in the class with him. Um, but Matt Mikulski, who we talked about, is at Fordham. Um, so he's out of New York, is a very interesting arm. And there's really a lot of interesting left-handers in addition to Mikulski. Anthony Solomito out of uh, Gloucester Catholic High School. Sorry if I'm butchering the pronunciation of that in New Jersey. And then Pierce Coppola out of New Jersey. I think this high school class is really good in general with left-handed pitchers, but it seems like a lot of them are clustered in this area, or at least there are a few of them in this area. But those are some of the guys who just jump out to me. But I know, Ben, this is kind of your area as well. So are there any other guys you want to mention that I didn't? Yeah, you hit on the, I think, a lot of the main guys from that area. Yeah, if you haven't read it to Alexis, Brudnicki wrote a really good story on Pierce Coppola, who's mm-hmm. a left-handed pitcher out of New Jersey who's six foot eight like a Tyler Glasnow sized human being who Glasnow when he was in high school too, was not cause cause Coppola, I mean, again, they haven't even started their, their regular season yet. So we'll, we'll see how these guys, I'm really excited to see how some of these guys look coming out of the gate, but he was more Glasnow was more, I think like upper eighties, low nineties, uh, at least early on. And yeah, uh, we have, um, um yeah in the spring of his draft year we had him running his fastball into the low 90s but more often it was 83 to 89 sitting in the mid 80s so that's kind of crazy actually to think about i yeah. think right now he has the second hardest fastball in the majors outside of the ground which yeah and he was six eight gangly that's kind of like scouting projection 101 for future projection 101 <laughs> there you go tying it in <laughs> so he yeah but and i remember too he went to the gulf coast league that year and i did our gulf coast league list and he was really good that year and his stuff had trended up i think he was in the mid 90s at that point he was a fifth round over slot guy back in that 2011 draft out of high school from california and that was kind of the start where he started to tick up and and the yeah, stuff. you had him sitting 91 94 and peaking at 96 on that yeah report. it looks yeah number nine in the gulf coast league that's not mm-hmm. bad for a that's pretty good for a fifth round fifth round, fifth round pick in, signee, yeah in that uh yeah and wait, in that league already that's a pretty massive jump in one year it's kind of crazy sitting mid 80s yeah. and then you're touching 96 a year later and that's why, yeah, yeah, that's why you got to stay, especially these like long, lanky guys when they fill out or or just yeah. get a, or just get better body control. Better yeah, they don't have awareness. the strength to have that body control, or they just don't have the coordination yet because they're growing so rapidly. Yeah, yeah, and they just become yeah, or just become more efficient mechanically too to be able to throw harder, or or they just get on the right. Or, or a better throwing program. There, there's a lot of things that can happen where you can see these guys make pretty significant jumps. That's why I'm really excited to get out uh, and and see a lot of these arms in this area. So yeah, if you, if you go to if you're a BA subscriber, you can read the uh, the story on on Coppola. Uh, yeah, Alexis has been doing a lot of really good, just 
color for the draft, a lot of cool stories on, on players and really fleshing out what they're working on, how they kind of view themselves as prospects. So definitely check out all of her work. Yeah. She's got some good ones coming up. She was telling us about too, that sounded really yes. detailed. Don't want to <laughs> spoil them, but we got some fairly prominent they're prospects. Good. She's going to be profiling. So that'll be fun. Yeah. Uh, the other guy from, from uh, New York, I would say just to keep an eye on uh, Jacob Steinmetz, who is in our, our most recent update of the top 300, I believe. Um, yep. We had him he, in the 200 to 300 range. He, yeah, he's, his season is, he's a high school pitcher from, from New York. Uh, he's, he's really young. He's still 17 until just after the draft. Uh, his high school season is they're not going to play this year. So he's been down in Florida and he's been low to mid nineties down there with a really tight spinning breaking ball. So he's kind of a, you can obviously tell from our, our draft report or our most recent rankings, he's kind of a guy moving up. So if you want a, an arm to watch from New York, from the high school ranks, he'd be a guy to keep an eye on. Although I guess if you're in New York, <laughs> not, uh, not going to be able to. <laughs> yeah. Go down to Florida and watch him. Yeah. <clears throat> all right. Yeah. So there are, there are a few names. There are a lot more pitchers that we didn't mention that would be worth checking out. You can see all of these guys uh, on the BA 300 that's on our site right now. We're expanding to 400 at some point soon. Um, don't have a specific date on that, but sooner, sooner than we know it, we'll be at the BA 500, which is kind of crazy. Um, next question is from Mitch Robinson from Instagram or on Instagram. He asked, what are the chances of Mariners shortstop Noel V. Marte jumping into the top 25 prospects in baseball with a big year? Thanks from Australia. That's cool that we have someone listening from uh, all the way on the other side of the, of the world. Thank you for, for tuning in, and we appreciate the question. Um, I think he has the upside to, to be a top 25 prospect in baseball. I don't know that he'll get there this year. He would have to really, really crush it. <laughs> going from the DSL to what I presume will probably be a assignment to low A. I mean, Julio Rodriguez did it. I don't want to say he's not – I do love Noel V. Marte. Um, these guys have been the best players in the DSL the last two years, which just kind of feels like cheating a little bit because <laughs> the Mariners always keep, just as a club organizational philosophy, they always keep – their best or all of their first year international signings from or, or at least their 16 year old signings in the DSL for the first year. Whereas most clubs would push players of that talent level to the Arizona league or, or the Gulf coast league at 17 years old. But the Mariners probably have, if not the best facility in the Dominican Republic, certainly one of the top, very small number of facilities down there it's not a not a bad place to <laughs> to spend your to spend your first season so um but it is i i i think he i i think he'll jump into the top 50 prospects if he performs the way i i expect him to and i do think he has the upside to be a top 25 prospect in baseball but i'm not sure he's going to be able to get to that by the end of 2021, but I also wouldn't rule it out either uh, just because I, I like him that much. He's power, speed, 
I don't know if he stays at shortstop. I think I was about to ask what you thought about his chances to stick there. Yeah, I, I think he probably moves off the position, although we'll probably also get a he, he is a really good athlete. I don't know that he's a natural in or he, I think he can play the infield still. I don't know that he's a natural shortstop, but guys well guys have surprised with that before, like we've talked about Bo Bichette. See here. Uh, yeah, Seeger, you know, Xander Bogarts also mm-hmm. when when he was younger. And look, people didn't really get a lot of looks at uh Noel V. Marte in 2020. So it's it's very possibly could have changed. So I, I, I still think more than likely he ends up moving off the position and, and maybe goes to third base. I could see him there. And and if he does, I'm I'm, I'm comfortable with the, the bat and, and the power to be able to project him as a an above average regular if if he does go there. So um, I'm a, I'm a big Noel V. Marte fan. Awesome. Uh, our last question comes from K. Joe Hudson on Twitter. Can you explain how most teams plan out their international signing class? I'm assuming players for a million or more come to an agreement about a year out. Do the ten thousand dollar signings all agree right before the periods open or just after? Um, Surprisingly, this question is directed at you, Ben. Yeah, so so for the bigger signings, I guess as, as far as the timeline of when they're committing to clubs, right now a, a lot of them are happening, I would say, even earlier than a year. We're, we're talking about multiple years in advance of when the their signing period opens. Uh, with Cuban players, it's it's obviously different. They have to actually leave the country and and go to. It seems you know usually right now the the Dominican Republic and then um, you know sign from from there. So it's it's different with them. For the as far as far as the ten thousand dollar signings though, yeah, that's you know you're usually not. I, no, no, nobody's agreeing to sign with a club two years in advance for $10,000 bonus. A lot of those are happening later on in, in the process, either a lot of times it's, it's once the signing period is already opened and a player is just looking for an opportunity to get signed. A team has already spent all of its bonus pool money at that point. But if you signings of, ten thousand dollars or less do not count against a club's international bonus pool so you know you could sign 30 players for ten thousand dollars and zero dollars would count toward your bonus pool so even if you've spent your whole pool you can still sign guys for 10k so that you do see a lot more of those once the signing period opens or as it gets closer to the signing date and it's just a, a player is just looking for an opportunity to sign and, and the team wants to sign that player, but they just don't have the, the pool space in their budget. So yeah, those, those smaller $10,000 type signings are not usually happening uh, too far in advance of the official signing period opening. It's, it's a, a lot of the times it's happening during the, during the year as teams have already spent their pool money and, and say, look, you know, we can sign you for $10,000 cause that's what we have in the pool. Uh, and, and the players says, 
yes and they'll they're they're just kind of looking to get their foot in the door at, at that point i got you all right well thank you ben uh thank you to everyone who sent in questions this time again if you guys want to send us questions you can do that on twitter at future pro pod you can find ben at ben badler and you can find myself at carlos a Calazo. Uh, i think that's all we have for this episode uh, ben is there anything that you're working on moving forward you want to alert the listeners to uh, or any final comments before we get out of here just cranking up our our draft coverage looking forward to the minor league season getting started next month so yeah and a lot more like we were saying a lot more baseball teams starting up play here for for the high schools up in up in the northeast so it's uh it's a pretty pretty fun time yeah i don't really have too much to add to that um most of this week for me has been dealing with the fallout of roy williams leaving uh unc for our basketball program so uh, thoughts and prayers yeah thoughts and prayers now hubert hubert's got us he's got us in a good spot we just need walker kessler back but for those who uh don't care about basketball i will not talk much more about that um again thank you to everyone who's listened to the podcast thank you to everyone who has taken the time to leave a review or a rating on the podcast if you have not done that um, a review really helps us at this point i think we're sitting with a five-star review right now so sincere thanks to everyone who's taken the time and who's appreciated the podcast and as always, if you guys have any thoughts or questions or comments or anything you want to see us do on the show, let us know in any of those um, mediums we've, we've talked about before on the pod. So thank you again for listening, everyone. For Ben, I'm Carlos. We'll see you next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.